Welcome to the Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1985 film Vagabond. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great. Barrett, um, we this is our second uh, Agnes Varda uh, film, um, and I think this is a really interesting film. It makes me want to see everything that she made because the the two that we watched, I feel like. Um, uh are very different but also there's lots you can see connecting them uh but let's start with what is your history with this film is this something you had seen before no i just picked up on it because um like you i became more interested in varda i've been wanting to watch more of her for a while and then um i guess i discovered that it was on the criterion channel uh which as you know is always a, a rabbit hole that's worth going down so I watched it on Criterion, and uh, and I really liked it. And then, as I said last week, I think it uh, it goes nicely with uh, with Wanda uh, as a, a kind of companion piece, and also contrasts in some ways to Cleo from five to seven as well. Well, that's absolutely what I thought. I mean, I, I was thinking, well, this is such such clearly you could make such a have such a great conversation if you only constrained yourselves to um, thinking about Wanda and Vagabond. But I got to say, as I watched this movie, I kept thinking about other movies. There's other, so many other things came to mind where I'm like, well, actually, that's a really good con- uh, conversation to have here and here. And some, I mean, they, they are as strange as comparing it to John Hughes movies from 1985 and saying, oh, here's different pictures of like kind of teenagers in, you know, revolt uh, in revolt against the things around them. And mm. Marta paints a very different picture than, say, some of the folks in the breakfast club who might um, fashion themselves as kind of a, a Mona type figure, but they're definitely not, uh, not uh, going all the way in terms of mm-hmm. the, the way, the way that Mona does, you know, from that to all kinds of other things that we talked about. So I'm excited as we, as we talked to think about some of um, some of those connections. Um, but I definitely thought about Cleo from five to seven as well. You know, if, if nothing else, if you think about, um, that as you know these as these they're both they're both films about a woman wandering um you know uh, uh, and 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 in cleo we get obviously much more insight into cleo herself and the arc of that movie is very different um but it's interesting to think of this as the same the same filmmaker you know so there's some uh, maybe some similar themes uh, kind of running through that. As a side note, as I was thinking about Cleo, I also think Cleo from five to seven pairs really nicely with Greta Gerwig's Barbie. I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting conversation you can have um, as well. Um, this movie has a very, um, it's interesting, both a very familiar structure, but it also felt very fresh. And what I mean by that, if you think about how this movie starts, this movie starts like some other films that we have watched, which is this movie starts with a dead body. Um, and then we're going to kind of, and, and you can tell that the rest of this movie is going to be, I actually wrote in my notes, hurtling slowly towards this scene that we start with. And I don't know if you can hurdle slowly. I think that, 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 that but, but, it, but it sort of feels like that, like, like, you know, it has a momentum that Wanda doesn't have because Wanda, you don't know where it's going. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but with this, it's like, well, you, we know where we're headed in this story. Um, so it feels like it has this momentum that way, but at the same time, it is not a movie that is moving quickly. Um, but at the same time, it kind of is because of the way she cuts uh, cuts around it. But I instantly thought of things like, um, I mean, this is not a great comparison, but my first thought was Sunset Boulevard, where we open on a body. And then I realized, actually, the shape of this looks more like 
Citizen Kane in some ways, where you start with a death and then you have this sort of investigation into um, into this who this person was. And we really only get views of this person through the eyes of these other people. Now, it's a very different movie than that. And they're they're after some very different things, but it, it shares some shape with that, I think. Well, I, I'm glad you started there, Sam, because I wanted to point out that um, there's connections uh, both to Cleo uh, from five to seven and my life to live in terms of structure. Um, and the way that the structure and the, um, the cinematographic style are, are connected is really interesting. So there are this film actually has quite unobtrusively 12 sections, which you don't really notice at first. And that is there are 12 tracking shots that move from right to left. And the tracking shot begins with an object and then it ends with a, with a parallel or a similar object. So for example, one tracking shot begins with a piece of farm equipment and then it picks up the next tracking shot begins with a different piece of farm equipment. So she punctuates it with 12 in the same way that both Cleo and My Life to Live are divided into chapters. Um, she also has 12 interviews. Uh, there's 12 different people that talk about, about Mona. Uh, and then each tracking shot is accompanied with a piece of music from a, from a, a piece ironically called Life uh, by a Polish composer, which makes me think about, again, My Life to Live, where um, Godard, you know, wanted particular musical variations for each of those uh, portraits. So that to me is, you know, that's kind of Varda's structure. And then there are other structures, as you've already alluded to, that it's kind of a, it's kind of a documentary slash mystery that I would connect with Citizen Kane you know, as she is going to invest, you know, so it, just as Citizen Kane, you kind of start with the, uh, with the death and then you investigate who was this person. You, same thing here. You start with her death. Now, the difference is you have a highly documented life in the case of Kane, mm -hmm. but you can't get at his mystery. And in the case of Mona, you have an undocumented life, but you still can't get, quite get at her mystery. So she's got that structure going on. It's also, of course, a road movie um with a single protagonist and um it's also uh what david the critic david boardwell calls a, a a network narrative um mona touches all these different lives that end up being connected to each other but it's also a network narrative like uh, winchester 73 where you have an object in that case you have a gun uh or 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 you have uh, in the case of um of, uh, of uh, Brassant's Ahazard, Balazar, or EO, you have the donkey. So you have, have kind of a, a circulating object. Um, Brassant made another film called Argent, which is about a circulating banknote. But in this case, Mona is the circulating object. So it's it's amazingly, in my mind, it's, a, it's an amazingly layered film, which is so deceptively simple, and yet it's highly highly structured. Yeah, it, uh, there's so many things you just said there that I want to come back to. The the um, I was thinking about the shape of the film and how we describe it, and this is a terrible description, but it fits some of what you're saying there. Is it sort of feels like it moves the way a tornado moves, mm. where it's moving in a direction, but it's spinning at the same time. So it's both linear, but then it's also like it keeps yeah. moving forward and back, 
and it and we come to we come back to places as we spin we come back to people the other interesting thing is it's a road movie the whole the whole time you watch it mona is on the move but she doesn't seem to get anywhere too because mm. it's like she's still kind of in the same place with kind of the same people yep. even though she never stops moving and i thought that it the second time i watched it i think i became more aware of like oh this person is that person because yep. sometimes you'll see them in um in one shot and you won't realize wait that person's going to come back later and they're never going to reference that other thing because they don't even it's like the people don't know that they're the same person sometimes right 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 you know because they're there may be a background character in something and then they're foregrounded in another scene and interviewed. Um, and I, I mean, it, it's a movie that I want to watch again and I really want to track faces a little bit more and be and like almost diagram out like the the way this thing moves. That's where I think the death is so important, too, is it means that as it's moving in this this sort of spinning circular way, it still is moving in a direction. We know where we're headed even though how we get there is very um, is spinning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's the second scene, you know, in which we see her, she comes out of the sea, uh, which of course is a really interesting reference perhaps to, to the birth of Venus. Uh, and the narrator says, you know, or Varda says, oh, we're going to talk about that narration. I wrote that. Yeah. Down. I want to go through all of that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So that's Paolo. That's Paolo, you know, on, on the mm-hmm. motorcycle. And of course, yeah. So, so we see all these people that she's connected with, and they're not necessarily connected to each other. I mean, this we can talk about this later, but this culminates in the scene at the station, right? Where almost mm-hmm. almost everybody is there, but nobody is really intersecting with anybody else or or with her. Yeah, it seemed like 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 such a great version of things. It's something that's often done kind of poorly, where it's like all these different stories that intersect. I mean, I think about a movie like Crash or something like that, where yeah, it's like yeah. all these different stories that intersect. This you could easily miss that these stories intersect, you know? Um, And, and uh, yeah. So, so like, and so that makes it, I feel like it sort of plays out really brilliant. I want to talk about the tracking shots really quick. For one thing, I, I definitely uh, tracked with those. I didn't catch that there were also 12 interviews that, that, Mm -hmm. that part I missed. What I love about the tracking shots and, and this, this connects back to Wanda. We talked about how Wanda, we have that, um, it op- one of the opening c- shots is that big wide shot where we see mm-hmm. her as a speck, you know, and, and like that, that says something about what this story is going to be. I think the tracking shots also um, function in a similar way, because the other interesting thing about them is they all feature. I think they mostly all feature Mona on the move mm-hmm. and Mona is not contained within them. So like, like they often start either they start with her. And then she turns or stops and they keep going or they don't start with her and then mm-hmm. she's in it and then she's not or right. like, like, so it's like, so it's sort of telling us a little bit about these are the chapters, but they can't, it's, um, it's kind of the cane thing. Like we're, it's, in, we're incapable of containing her entirely. Um, even Varda's incapable of containing her entirely. So those shots keep announcing that. Um, and then the, the, there is something just so haunting about that music piece whenever it comes back. Um, it almost sounds like horror movie music, and sometimes that that yeah. it's just ominous. And then, in the case of the assault that happens in the mm-hmm. woods, it it like that actually just plays out like a horror scene, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and it, so so yeah, like like th- those really stuck out to me. And I think you know they're um they're conspicuous shots in the movie because they don't, uh, almost none of them are 
narratively important where it's like oh this is it's not like an establishing shot for the next place we're gonna go it's just this they're they're a sign of like mona on the move and mona in a new place and and it it gives us a moment to stop and think i think in those in those shots too i i I, yeah i i think they also give you a sense of um mona's contingency in the world um you know because sometimes it's like the track the tracking shots almost always uh, enable us to discover mona mm-hmm. and, and sometimes she's walking there's at least one where she's sitting and she's kind of got her stuff spread out in front of her um I, I i love the one where the tracking shot comes along discovers her but it's just sort of tracking with the police car and then she ducks behind the, mm-hmm. behind the wall so it's almost like you know you you are becoming the searching eye and you keep coming upon Mona. So in a sense, it gives you as the viewer kind of the same experience of the people in the film who meet Mona. They, 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 they just chance upon her, right? She's hitchhiking or she happens to walk into their, into their farm. And so, you know, in, in a film which is posing a lot of questions through the character of Mona and asking you to make a lot of judgments through the character of Mona, I think the tracking shots help to kind of reinforce that idea of okay you come upon this person what what are you going to make what are you going to make of her how is it that she's popped up here you know what what's going to happen next yeah and you talked about the the one tracking shot where she's sitting that one was one of the more interesting ones to me because she's sitting and then we end up it's one of the few where we end up cutting back because we look at what she's doing and she's looking at like photographs or postcards mm-hmm. or something yeah. and and like a bad version of this movie she would be looking at objects that connect her to the different people in the yeah. in the sh- but instead it's like where she's looking at things that are pointing to the fact that her life is beyond what this movie is about cuz like i look at all those and i'm like that's interesting what is that and what is the one that she picks up and looks at what does that mean to her mm-hmm. and the movie's not going to tell us that but it's it's indicating something bigger about her and it also reminds us a bit of the of the second scene where the guys are looking at the pornographic postcards, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which is which are also aligned with her as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about this narration because this is this is maybe uh, in the pantheon of great voiceover. Uh, so I actually stopped and wrote the whole thing down. Um, so this is very early in the movie. This is after. Um, uh, the body's discovered. I think there's maybe one or two quick conversations. The police are interviewing people. Mm-hmm. And then is it it's Farda doing the voiceover, right? Yes. Correct. Okay. So here's what she says. And I want to I want to unpack a little bit of this. She says, no one claimed the body. So it went from a ditch to a potter's field. She had died a natural death without leaving a trace. I wonder if those who knew her as a child still think about her. Mm-hmm. But the people she met recently remember her. Those witnesses helped me tell about the last weeks of her last winter. She left a mark on them. They spoke of her not knowing she had died. I didn't tell them, nor that she was that her name was Mona Bergeron. I know little about her myself, but it seems to me she came from the sea. Mm-hmm. Now, for one thing, again, just you know, Hall of Fame voiceover. Like, like I think about the great voiceover films of all time, Apocalypse Now, Goodfellas, stuff like this. It's like, this is better than anything in those to me. Like, it's like, because for one thing, it's um, it's almost like she's giving you a pitch for the movie, right? Like, I, I would buy this in the room if, if, if a filmmaker walked in, read that and walked out, I'd be like, yep, I'll see that movie. That sounds great. Um, there's something poetic about saying, about 
not saying uh, they talked about her last days, but the last weeks of her last winter, because mm-hmm. um, it's setting the time, you know, um, especially like I actually find that helpful because um, I mean, obviously this is winter because there's almost no green there, but it doesn't look like winter looks in, for example, the place that we live. So the, so there's this setting there. Um, there's also uh, by calling it her last winter makes me think how many winters has she survived? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so it's like, it sort of asked me questions there. I love the line. Um, they did not know she was dead. Mm-hmm. So that shape, cause, because we're going to hear all of these stories. Right. And, um, and in Kane, whenever, uh, whenever he's talking to somebody about Charles Foster Kane, they know he's dead and they're sort of mm-hmm. reflecting on, the entirety of of his life. These folks don't know that. I mean, she's telling us they don't know that she's dead. So it does that doesn't affect the way they talk about her. They don't spin her story into a tragedy. They're just kind of conveying things. And then the next thing she says is, and I didn't tell them, mm-hmm. which is also meaning, what are you not telling us? <laughs> you know, like it's like, well, that's really interesting. Um and then my favorite line is, it seems to me she came from the sea. Because as you pointed out, it like gives her a, a, a sort of like mythic origin story almost. I also thought about the birth of Venus. I was like, and and then we see her, I mean, like, yeah. uh, as much as as sex and the threat of sex and, and sexual assault like is at the edges and, and at, at one point at the center of this movie, it's the one time we see her, you know, like, like it's, you see her at a distance, but you see her emerging from the sea mm-hmm. nude in some ways. I mean, this is how we are born. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, um, and it's, and it also gives you this sense of like, this is as far back as Varda's character has tracked. Like we see, we see the origin as far back as she can go. There is, there is nobody she can connect mona to back further than that so this this for all intents and purposes is the birth of her even though we learned little pieces before that this is as far back as we're gonna go i think that's such a fantastic character introduction i feel like the body's not the character introduction emerging from the sea is the character introduction in a kind of way yeah and and also i think you know in that in that narrative the contrast between what not leaving a trace and making a making a mark Mm. Um, i really yeah i mean the, the, the idea that Mona, in a sense, is this um, very, very brief presence in these, in these people's lives. And as you said, they don't know that she's they, she's dead. All they know is that she's gone. And yet somehow she's left a mark on them, which, of course, says something both about her and about and about them. And that's the other thing I think you begin to realize as you watch the film again, is that it's it's about Mona, but it's also about the people and how they respond to Mona, both when she's there and then in reflecting on her afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, we, I realized the second time how little I learned about Mona the first time through, I felt like she was at the center. And the second time through, I felt like, and I mean this in a, in a, in a bad way, she almost feels like a device to, to me. I mean, not, I don't mean this in a bad filmmaking way, but it's like, it was harder for me to think about her as a person and much. And I was thinking about these other people who were impacted by her. And that's part of that, like mythic quality of her too. I think that, that, that sets her up, that she is this thing moving through the world. And, and, and I was trying to pay so much attention to the things she said about herself. And there's so little, um, there's so little she expresses about her ideas about things or about her past or about her, you know, in this, maybe getting back to, to, 
she's a very different character than Wanda, but like, what does, what does Mona want and things like that? Like I was trying to think about those connections and, and there is so little that you, that you gain from gain about her other than um, it's almost more stuff you get in sort of her nonverbal things. And some of, some of those other pieces where there are these, like there is this, um, one of one of my favorite moments in the film is there's one day where it's she's sleeping in the tent in a snowy field and it's morning and she opens up and looks out and like the bright light is there and she just kind of rolls over and looks up at the sun and mm-hmm. uh, it's mm-hmm. it's like one of two or three moments in the movie where I think she might be happy yeah I you know see. and it's like and like that's a very meaningful moment but it's like but that's a very odd moment to unpack like I don't know. I, 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 I'm, and this is maybe what the movie's about too. Is like, how much am I projecting onto that moment? Me, how much is am I making that about me and my projection? When I really don't know anything about what Mona's feeling at that moment, other right, than right. than that. Yeah, it's kind of back to that circulating object idea. She's like the uh, the the rifle in Winchester seventy three, or a more recent film uh, that just came to my mind is the Red Violin from uh, nineteen. Oh yeah. No, uh, like I said, so it's it's it's. You know, she's obviously has a consciousness and an identity, so she's more complex than that. But there is a sense in which, you know, she she's important because of how she touches each of those lives and how each of those lives responds to her and also to each other as part of that uh, network narrative. Yeah. And and um, like in Cleo, the first half of Cleo, so much of that is about how other people see her. Yeah. And how that. In that case, how that shapes Cleo, and then there's sort of the break halfway through where Cleo kind of takes takes over the story. And so part of me was wondering, like, well, is is that going to happen here? Is Mona going to take over the story? And she really doesn't, you know, in that in that same kind of way. She stays at a distance where Cleo like ends up connecting with us. Like there, there's a it's a different arc of that story, but um, but it made me think a lot about that. So because this narrative is uh linear and non-linear in the way that it's told i don't know that we need to worry about order of things but i'm curious about the people she encounters like we don't need to go through everybody but like like what are the stories that stuck out stuck out to you or the people that stuck out to you um in terms of their connecting with her well i think the uh, i guess first of all i i i'm struck by the set of people that um saw her as a kind of an ideal you know, that she was uh, the farmer's daughter, for example, where she stops for the water. You know, she was free. Um, they talked to a woman sitting in a shop and said, she's got character. Um, and then there are those, of course, uh, you know, who are a little a little, a little crasser. You know, uh, John says she was some piece of ass. And, uh, you know, and David says she was really cool. So you, So you get those people who admire her. Um, and then I really found it interesting the second time too, to realize that the first person she talked to never finishes his what he says about her. He says, I realized she was a hmm. stops. And to me, that is kind of Varda's template. And then, of course, the last person she talks to, Usan, doesn't say anything. Right. He just holds up the scarf and kisses it, which I think is so incredible. And then you've got, of course, the... The, the one, uh, the goat herder, you know, the former philosophy professor, uh, philosophy student, he's the one that has the strongest judgment about her. He says, this is not wandering, but withering. So, so I think, you know, that, that, those are kind of the, that's kind of the spectrum you get as people respond to her. Yeah, no, I, I, I um, 
I think it was is really interesting. So so I the second time through I really honed in on the interviews because I thought this is where this is where there's some interesting stuff. So you talked about the the girl at the pump who I think is also the girl who loves to ride the motorbike. I think that's the same person. Yeah. Um and it's interesting cuz she talks about, you know, she, seeing her as free and wanting to be free and um you know, her mother says like, well, but does she have someone that provides food for her? And she says, sometimes I think it might be better to be to be free and not eat or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And then the next time we see her, you know, the, the, we see the parents talking about her and how all she likes to do is is uh, is ride her motorbike. And what we see her doing is just riding it in a circle around yes. a tree. <laughs> and it's like, well, yes, she's doing that. But like that is very different than, say, what Mona would do with them. Like 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 she's she. She's, it seems she seems caged in that way. Mm-hmm. In the same way, the the woman who said that she has character. Yes. In the rest of that, she says to her, I presume she's talking to her husband, and she basically says, like, you know, what happens when you marry the wrong person young? And she and like it's another image of like she is a person now trapped. You know, yes, in the same sure. in the same way she's circling that 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 tree herself. Yeah, marry the wrong man and you're stuck for life, she says. Yeah. And then she calls Mona hippie. She says, I liked that hippie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is another category to put her in, right? She's a hippie. Um, and then the the two characters we circle back to the most, I feel like, are Yolanda mm-hmm. and um and the the tree professor. I forget I forget what her name is. Yeah, yeah. Um uh Mademoiselle Landier. Yeah, yeah. And then her assistant too, Jean Pierre. Yes. He, he yes. has a lot to say about, about Mona. Yes. So um uh, let, let's start with Landier. Like like that. I'm she she was very her her take was very interesting because she actually says she says a lot to Mona, but um I feel like interview wise we don't get as much of her talking, but we definitely get some powerful moments of maybe the lasting impact that she has. Yeah, she's interesting because she never, you know, she never talks directly to the camera. So we we have we kind of get three takes on Mona from her perspective. We have her talking in the bath uh, about Mona, and then we see the scenes with her in the car with Mona, and even bringing Mona food and champagne. And then most importantly, we see her having her near death experience, and what flashes through her mind, interestingly enough, is is Mona. And she says um, that hitchhiker kept coming back like a kind of reproach. I should have done something. I don't even know her name, which is ironic because she's the person that spends the most time with her. And early on, she talks about, you know, how initially she kind of repulsed me, but then I got used to her. She says, I got used to her stink and her smoking and her and her poverty. And, and Jean-Pierre's wife characterizes Mazam Landier as somebody who's always, she says, hot for some cause. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not really sure what Varda is saying about Landier. You know, whether you know, is she kind of critiquing her as sort of a bleeding heart liberal who wants to do the right thing or thinks she wants to do the right thing, but actually isn't capable of doing it. Or if, does she have genuine regret? You know, she sends Mona off with food, with money, and then she thinks afterwards, I shouldn't have left her to the woods. It's a dangerous place. And she's right, because that's where Mona gets raped. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so she really has kind of, in my view, kind of the most interesting relationship to, uh, to Mona. You know who she reminded me of? Um, and this is this is also a movie I thought a lot about watching this. This is the movie that came after this. Um, 
she reminds me a lot of the stalker Channing character in Six Degrees of Separation. Oh, yeah. Where it's like you have this outside. Again, that's a little bit different because it's somebody who's kind of running. Well, not kind of is running a con on them to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but there's also a deg- there's also a layer of genuineness to that or genuine desire for connection. But she's the one who at the end of that movie at the end of that movie is like, I don't want mm. this to just become another amusing story we tell. Yeah. You know, that it's like like this was real this this happened this person was real <laughs> and i feel like there's there's a little bit of that uh in 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 Landier, like 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 that where, where she's she's wrestling with like this happened i'll probably never find this person and even though she kind of sends jean pierre out to to do that but there there's this sense of of regret and this and maybe this sense of like i live in a world where and maybe i'm projecting this on where i could go back to those like conferences and cocktail parties and tell this story about this hitchhiker i picked up one day and it's like i feel convicted that that this should be more than just a story that i tell that this that this should change me i should be impacted by this i i also tend to think that varga is exposing a savior complex because i think we've seen from other elements of mona's life mona does not want to be rescued mona Mona is making a decision. And in, in this key respect, I think she is different from Wanda. Um, even though the goat herd tells her kind of the same thing that Mr. Dennis tells Wanda, which is almost the same you, words. Yeah, same words. But Mona's different. M- 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 Mona is going to strike out on her own and she's going to choose to pursue what she wants to be. Because, I mean, there, it's true that she's rejected things. In a sense, there is a sense in which she doesn't want certain things. I, don't, I didn't go on the road to find another boss, she says. But she definitely wants to exercise her own agency, even if that leads her ultimately to, to her death. So I ultimately, you know, so I think that Landier has the fantasy of saving Mona as much for her own conscience as for Mona's sake, because mm-hmm. Mona doesn't want to be saved. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, what I find interesting about the the philosopher Goatherd, he's the most flat out critical of her, and sort of ideologically critical of her. Yes. Like when he talks yeah. about, you know, you you read too much trash. You know, it's like it's like your idea, you're you're drop, you're not because what he says is you're not dropping out. He basically saying I've dropped out of society. You're not dropping out. You just don't exist. You know, yes. or, or some you know. And um, but what's also interesting is there's other moments with him talking with her. Where it's almost like he's like, maybe I'm the one who's actually the compromise. Like I chose this mid path between, um, between dropping out and and lonely and you know and 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 having a family and and all this stuff. And so he almost like admires her, but at the same time, like like ideologically, he she's not in line with him. Um, I found him to be a really interesting character, uh, but but he has such a bitter turn towards his final reflections on her. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think he, she may be a bit of a reproach to him as well, even though, you know, he gives that long speech about how ultimately the loneliness is going to eat you up uh, I, and destroy you. I think he's really talking about his own story. And and I love their opening. I think it's the opening conversation between the two of them when he, he says on the road in this weather and she says I and, and uh, she's and she says, I didn't choose the weather. And he says, but you chose the road. And to me, that that is the expression of her agency. She chose the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the other, I think, 
sort of deeply compelling story that keeps, well, there's a couple more. Uh, I, I think the Yolanda um, is another one who uh, definitely at one level idealizes, well, uh, deeply idealizes, um, um, idealizes Mona, you know, when she sees the, the two of them lying there. And it's so funny that, that, because we see that relationship played out more than Yolanda does. So Yolanda talks about it as this like perfect image of ideal love. Yeah. And then I think about those two. It's like, well, no, I don't know. <laughs> like they, they smoked a lot of dope and hung out. Like, I don't know that that's ideal love. I don't think either of them thought about it as ideal love, but you could, but so again, that's her in the same way. I'm projecting something onto that scene in the tent in the sunlight. Yolanda's projecting something onto when she opens that door and sees the two of them sleeping and saying like, this is the thing that, this is the thing that I don't have. This is the thing that uh, I, I mean, much like that old woman who picks the wrong person to marry. She, you know, she feels trapped in a kind of way. It's almost like that is a, an earlier version of that, of that same person of like, you know, um, that, that she is trapped in her life. She is trapped in her relationship. She is trapped in her job. Um, And she sees, she sees Mona as that idealized view. And then when Mona comes back into her life, uh, it's interesting. You were talking about sort of the savior complex. And if you listen to the words Yolanda says, she's like, I've pampered this old woman for so long. Now I'm going to pamper you. It's like, now, now you fulfill this function for me. I'm going to, and it's like, that's a great thing, but that's not what, but Mona clearly does not want that either. Mo- Mo- Mona cannot be socialized. I, I think that's, I mean, fundamentally, M- Mona is rejecting the social order. And every time somebody tries to tame her, she she reveals that. But I do want to say, though, that Mo- when, when even though I agree that, you know, Yolanda is idealizing what's going on with, with Mona. And if you look at what David says afterwards, he says, you know, I thought she was the home. I thought she was the staying kind. Mm-hmm. I thought she was a homebody and she's not. But it's it's when it's when she's with David that she writes their name in the dust on the mirror, mm-hmm. and he and he erases it and says, you know, no trace. So there's that, and then when she's working for the mechanic, she never makes a connection with the with the other with the other guy, the young guy who I think is his son. Uh, but they keep exchanging those glances. It's like maybe something's going to be there. And at the end, I mean, I think so. It's interesting, you know, it's a it's a set of three relationships. And at the end with Usan, I mean, I think she, gen- she she generally cares for Usan. She actually reaches out and touches his face. And I think she would have stayed if she could have. So there's always this, there's this hint that, in, that she could make a connection with the right person in the right circumstances. But then what happens with Usan just, I think, con- confirms her sense that, no, it's not possible to settle down. It, it, it just can't work. You're absolutely right. The, the the Usan story, and what's funny is when I rewatched the movie, I kept waiting for that to happen. In my mind, like, again, that's why like the order is so strange. Is like, man, this is when is this going to? Ha- it's really late in the movie that that we get that that connection. And yeah, it is the one place where she seems happy. It's it, where she seems the closest to happy. She's upset that she has to leave. That yeah, never yeah. happens. Um, she defends him to the degree that she can when the um the the foreman's wife while she's doing laundry talks about how bad he smells and because at first it's like she's like oh i'm gonna i'm I'm now part of this world i'm gonna connect with this woman maybe and she hears him talk about his son and she's just she just shakes her head and walks away and is like you don't you don't understand but but um 
what is it about Usan that's different than all these than all these other? Because I mean, their the nature of their relationship is very different, um, uh, and and sort of their identities are very different than some of the other people she's connecting with. Well, I mean, there's there's a couple things. Um, you know, he's an outsider in the same way that she that she's that she's an outsider. He's also kind of rootless. He's you know from Tunisia, but here he is in, in France, and. He, well, I would say I would say here he is in France with a bunch of Moroccans. So he's an Moroccans. outsider exactly. even yeah. in the little group of outsiders he's in. Yeah. And um and you know when it comes to actually doing the 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 pruning work he's very um he's very gentle with her, right? And he shows her how to do it and then when she kind of lags behind he says, "Well, it's okay. Just keep up with me and I'll go back and kind of clean up after you." Um so I just he I think and he's not he's not making any judgment of of her. He doesn't ask her questions about herself. He just kind of takes her as she is. And I think that's why one of the reasons he connects with she connects with him. Yeah. I also love when they're eating together and they're sitting side by side and then she moves so they can look at each other. And like, like, again, that's, it's one of those moments where that's not a Mona thing to do, you know, and, but, 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 but she's, she's seeking out a kind of connection with him. Yeah. So it's, it makes that part so heartbreaking because, at the same time, you know where this story ends. You feel like, well, this could work. You know, it, it it actually feels like that. And it feels like she's there for a little while. And even when <clears throat> it's interesting to compare Usan with the mechanic, right? Because the mechanic gives her a job just like Usan gives her a yes. job. And he talks about her as a, a loafer and a man chaser, yes. right? And, and, because we later see her sitting around smoking while everybody else is working in the mechanic shop. We see that same scene out in the vineyard and Usan seems happy to have somebody there with him. And he's like, I'm going to do all this work. Anyhow, if you want to come and help a little great. And then I have somebody to talk to somebody to, to, to be in life with. Um, he seems like maybe the most, well, there's a lot of lonely people in this world, but he seems the most alone, lonely person. And um and they and and they connect now. Another another potentially very lonely person in this world is Aunt Liddy, which yes. is a a very another like um. That's a very different. It's a very different little moment of relationship. I mean, it um, it's not at all like this, but it reminded me a bit of like Babette's feast when they start to drink, and it's like you know they start to uh you know this outsider comes in and like introduces a a, a new way of thinking about how we could be living. Um, in a very small way, and and Liddy comes alive in a way that she hadn't seemed to be in the other parts of the movie. Um, and and he, even hearing them like joke about uh, joke about her nephew and and these types of things. And the the uh, ironic or sad part of that is that it's it's in that moment where she seems most alive that the next thing happens is they send her off to a home. Yeah, yeah. You know, where it's like it's like. Up until that, every other time you look at her, she seems to be this person who just sits in a chair and rings a bell and you think, well, maybe she should be. But but after yeah. being with Mona, you're like, actually, she's got a lot of life in her. And that's <laughs> when she gets sort of gets sort of um, shipped off. Well, I, I want to say one more thing about the about Usan or about kind of the arc of the film as it moves towards the end. And that is that she is um, Mona is not an easy person to like. You know, um, she's a difficult protagonist for the, for that reason. But I think that slowly, uh, and I think about other movies with difficult protagonists, um, Greenberg, uh, the Noah Baumbach film with uh, um, uh, ben, Stiller, ben Stiller. Ben Stiller. 
um, or um, Naked uh, by uh, uh, Mike Lee, or to a certain extent, the uh, Harrison Ford uh, character in Mosquito Coast. I mean, these are these are very unlikable people, and yet you spend a lot of time with them. And I think what happens with Mona is, um, I, I think that the relationship she has with Landier, I think the rape scene, and I think by the time you get to Usan and she shows that unexpected tenderness, I feel like. I start to like Mona a little more, you know, I, 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 I start to empathize with her in a way that I really haven't at the beginning of the film, because somebody who keeps sort of po poking her finger in other people's eyes, you know, metaphorically, which is what she does can be kind of hard to take. But by the time I get to the end, I, I, I genuinely felt compassion for her in a way that I obviously did not at the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, and that adds such a punch to when you get to the very end of the movie. Yeah. Um, uh, two things that Varda does really well um, is, and I don't, I, I'm trying to think of another movie where I feel this, like, I feel like she conveys the senses, the the senses that you can't actually convey in film. She seems to convey in this movie, um, which is, I feel so cold and wet watching this movie. Yeah. I sense every moment of like every time, every time, and the, so much of this movie is outside, and I just feel cold and damp. And and then the other thing is smell. They talk yeah. so much about smell, but they also show you enough stuff. And I think as a human being, you've all we've all been in moments of, you know, where either it's another person or maybe it's yourself, and you realize like the smell of a human body, mm. and you and 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 they she gives you enough indicators to think about that. Yeah. Um, and some, so somehow she's conveying those senses, even though the film is incapable of conveying them. And, and it's kind of masterful. I, I don't exactly even know how she does it, but there's little things like there's a, there's moments where, where we get shots of, of, of Mona's hands. Mm. And for some reason, thinking, looking at her hands, it makes me think of the smell too, because, because that's such an indicator of how like unclean some, someone is right. Uh, when you think about like you think about that um, and then that that sort of points to all these other things like I I don't I don't know how she does it, but she does a great job of it in this movie. Well, that could be. I mean, the best the best shot along those lines is when uh, she suggests to Mademoiselle Landier that they uh, uh, that the food would go well with the beer. Mm -hmm. And then you get the shot of their yep. hands on the, their hands on the table. I think that's that's a really vivid, vivid image of that dirtiness. Yeah. The other thing that sh that that, that I, I think is interesting in this movie is to track like the physical disintegration of uh, Mona's material state. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, you know, like you see zippers breaking thing. Yeah. I mean, the the boots are the big one that change. Like from early, uh, there's a scene early on where we see her repairing her boots. Then we see the zipper break, and by the end, the boots are just like the tops of the boots are just laying flat on the ground as she's sort of stumbling through um so so as 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 her life is unraveling it's like we get both this sort of mental emotional spiritual unraveling maybe but we also get this physical unraveling and and you know and by the end she loses her pack in her tent and she just has mm -hmm. just has the blanket you know when she escapes the fire yeah. um <clears throat> The ending of this movie is fascinating. I mean, the but before the death, um, that we were that we're in this village, and you know she go she she has slept overnight in this in this vineyard again, 
And now she's going into this village and we see everything is closing down. We see people running through the street. I had to do, a, did you do any reading about this? I, 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 I did not. Yeah. I didn't find out anything about I it. I did. But. Cause I was, I was yeah. like, so, so what's interesting is um, this also locates this movie at a very specific time in a very specific place. Mm. Um, so, so what we are seeing with these guys dressed up with like the feathers and, and branches and, and all the wine is a celebration of um, what's called uh polyhas day. Hmm. And it's from a, a it's, it, it's celebrated in a very specific village in France um, the village of, I have it right here. Um, the village of uh, Cornontreal in, in France. And it's, it's the replay. It, it happens on Ash Wednesday. So this, this puts it in time too. Oh, okay. So this is the very end of carnival, right? This is the very oh. last thing. It's like from 3 PM to 5 PM on Ash Wednesday. And it's not something for outsiders. It's something mm-hmm. that is, is really Outsiders are kind of not welcome at this. And it's this sort of game that they play where they're reenacting this 13th century local conflict mm. and they use the wine dregs and there's people dressed in white. And then there's the other people who have like the, the padding and the hats on. And the, the goal is to get the people dressed in white drenched in the wine dregs. Okay. Um, so this is, this is sort of the, the very end of, of carnival. Um, so what's interesting is it's very specific. It's also not explained in the least. It's not referenced. It just happens. Um, but presumably there are people who would see this and be like, Oh, I know what that is. Like, like, mm-hmm. like who, who would connect with that. Um, it also has this sort of <laughs> mythic feel to it. Or like, like she's entered. It's, it's almost other world. I mean, without being anything magical realist, it's almost feels otherworldly because mm-hmm. we haven't seen anything like this. Um, but it's also very, um, very, very, very hyper-specific to a small village in France. Yes. Um, yes. Which, I, which I find really interesting. And then this leaves her in the condition mm-hmm. um, that we finally see her. And, and one, I read this somewhere and I had the same sense watching it is like, when we see Mona lying in the field dead is the first time that I am really aware uh, that uh, Sandrine Bonaire is 17 years old. Oh, yeah. It's like she looks so much younger in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think about like I have kids who are 16 and 18. So like I kind of know what a 17 year old looks like. And it's like, and th- for the rest of that movie, I could project different ages onto Mona if I wanted to. But like it's the youngest she seems and the most vulnerable she seems, obviously, as lying there as a dead body. And um, so I just found it very interesting that she locates that that last day in that uh very strange hyper specific setting uh, i'm glad you found that out sam because i was wondering why it looked I, I was thinking along completely wrong lines it looked like some kind of celtic green man festival to me um but but it does bother me that the guy who sends her into the village i mean he must know that's about to happen that's interesting yeah oh absolutely yeah, and and I and I don't know what to make of that. Whether he just didn't think about it or he didn't care, but anyway, that just that just bothered me a lot that he didn't yeah. say, "Well, if you go to the village right now, you better watch out." So. Well, in in essence, they're playing a a game. It's a very violent game, but they're playing a game that's explicitly not meant for outsiders. And then yeah. the ultimate outsider of this movie walks into it, and like you know, like that. That's actually very interesting to to think about. I also think about it. I mean think about it being on ash wednesday as well is is interesting i mean i don't know that there's any um religious connection to make there but but that's that's kind of a kind of a fascinating thing um the french title for this movie 
Mm-hmm. I like so much better than Vagabond. I wish this movie was called with neither shelter nor law. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I feel like that conveys something different than Vagabond. I'm curious your thoughts on like on if this this movie if this movie were titled with neither shelter nor law. If it were titled with neither shelter nor law, nobody would go see it. Right. <laughs> At least. So yeah, and and uh, so I I think I think that's I think that's just the problem. I mean, it's a it's a more um, it's a it's a it's a better title because it points to her circumstances rather than labeling her as a vagabond. I, so I agree with you. It's, it's a better title in that respect. But um, <laughs> it also articulates something that is very true in the movie, but not, but she never specifically says, I seek neither shelter nor law. That's right. Right. But it's yeah. like, it's like when I, cause I, I didn't know that title until after I watched the movie and I was like, Oh, that's interesting. That is what it's, it, it's like, you told me something about Mona that the movie told me, but didn't explicitly say. Yeah. Um, Cause, cause yeah, especially the without law part. I mean, I, I get the without shelter. Yeah. Uh, thinking about, you know, what is it that she's rejecting? And, and there is sort of this, um, I mean, and the philosopher points this out, there is sort of the, there are some systems she's rejecting and it yeah, is fine. She's upholding them, you know, by her, you know, um, by her wandering with no purpose that, yeah. that, that she's actually uphold and by her death, she's upholding them, I think. Do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? A couple of other things. Um, I wanted to go back to the the topic of the people on whom she has the greatest effect, because I think that Jean-Pierre, like Madame uh, Landier, is most deeply affected by her. And he's <laughs> he encounters her in two scenes, and then he talks about her in a third. So he encounters her when she's with the professor inspecting the trees, and he, he, she scares him. Um, she says, do I scare you? And, and she does. And then later he's talking with her uh, about her with his wife. And he says a very, very strange thing. He says to his wife, her witch's hair reminds me of how soft and exquisite you are. So it's almost like he's trying to balance these two women and trying to figure out, hmm. well, the one that scares me, I'm going to kind of tame that by saying she actually reminds me of my wife. And then the wife, Elion, is is completely judgmental. She's the other person who's judgmental. She calls her a pig. She says there's something about that pig that charmed you and land, your Landier. She obviously disapproves of Landier. And then she says, stop feeling sorry for that runaway girl. Maybe she's a criminal, a psycho, or a dope addict. And then she talks about how they don't have any shelter. We're wasting our best years because we lack money and space. So one of the things that Varda keeps doing is she keeps contrasting Mona very strongly with female characters, contrasting her with Elian, contrasting her with Yolanda, Mm -hmm. even contrasting her with Liddy. And then the final scene with her and Jean-Pierre, of course, is when he sees her in the station and he's on the phone. And he says, she's revolting, a wreck. She makes me sick. But then he says... I can understand her confusion. I feel lost when myself sometimes. She scares me because she revolts me and because she's so similar to what I might be. So to me, he's the most interesting character in terms of that deep revulsion he feels because he's afraid. Ebert says this in 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 not his original review of Vagamon, but in a different review, he says that Vagamon suggested that we all may be closer to the gutter than we think if we Mm -hmm. lose our discipline and our support systems. I think that's that's really a, a significant message of the film. The other thing I want to say, Sam, is the most obvious thing in the world, which is 
the protagonist of this film, like the other films we've been talking about, is a woman. We, we don't, I mean, and, and in this sense, Mike Lee's uh, Naked is the closest to having a male protagonist who's in a situation like Mona. But by and large, you know, this is another feminist film in the same way that Wanda is a feminist film in that it is really talking about the position of women in society and what happens when a woman tries to carve out her own identity and ends up with neither shelter nor law. Right. That's really interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, and I talked about this uh, last week, but there are the um, <laughs> the male versions of these stories in the mid 20th century are very different because they're they're much more. About, I mean, I again, like 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 how different is she than Sal Paradise and on the road? Well, <laughs> he has a lot of other things, uh, you know, yeah. other other um uh, explicit and implicit support systems and, and just the way people view someone on their own. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I think, um, I think it might be the mechanic who says, um, you know, the thing about like female wanderers is yes. that they are, they are the, like not wanderers, but specifically women wanderers, women wanderers they yeah. are these things. And that's what you need to be aware of. Another character I found really interesting um, I mean, this is a very minor character, but when she's sitting at the fire at the construction site and the guy who's interviewed there, mm. because he didn't talk with her, he's like, well, here's what I saw. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's it's very rare to see a woman doing that. Yeah. I didn't talk with her. I should have talked with her. I like, yeah, like there, there's like like he's really interesting to me because it's not that she definitely left a mark on him because he because he he keeps thinking about it. It's like, I, you know, like, like, why didn't I? And. And, and and should I have? And I think that's a, you know, one of these one of the things that this movie asks. I mean, a lot of good art does this. Is like, okay, so what if you're one of these people? Are mm-hmm. are are you? If you drive by Mona hitchhiking, do you stop? If you yeah. let her in and you you get that that smell that that Landier talks about, what's your response to that? If you see her, do you talk with her or do you turn the other way? Um, you know, I think that th- this naturally asks some of those questions. All right, Barrett, uh, what do you have for us for next week? Well, I th- um, you know, I'm thinking about this whole theme of uh, of women that uh, are kind of taking charge of their destiny and even renaming themselves. Uh, and I'm thinking about the fact that we're doing women directors. And I'm thinking about the fact that Barbie is having a, mem- a moment. So I think we should do Greta Gerwig's first film that she directed, Lady Bird. Um, in the same way that Mona renames herself Mona and Lady Bird names herself Lady Bird. And I just, I, you know, I, I love Barbie. Um, I think Greta Gerwig's a great director, first female director to, uh, to make, uh, have a film earn a billion dollars uh, globally. So anyway, I, and I've been wanting to go back to Lady Bird for a while anyway. So uh, yeah. I don't know if you could tell from my face, but this is one of my absolute favorite movies. I know I'm going to have a great week because I'm going to watch Lady Bird at least twice this week. It's going to be fantastic. Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film uh, and for watching this with us and talking with us. Um, this I just want to I just want to watch more Varda. That's going to be I, I think that she's on my list now of when I have free time to watch a movie. It's let's look at her filmography and and grab something. I also love documentaries and she makes a lot of those, too. Yeah. Um, this was this was really fantastic. Um, so thank you for recommending this. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Lady Bird in the video store. <laughs> <laughs>